Okay, we are in the book of Revelation together, so let's open up to chapter 9, which is where we're at. Almost halfway through the book of Revelation, chapter 9, and you know, we're, we're kind of in the thick of it here, brothers and sisters. I mean, we're right smack dab in the middle of the gnarly stuff. Uh, it's going to get a little creepier as we go through. There's some stuff coming up in the, in the next few chapters that is even more difficult to understand, in my estimation, than the things that we've seen. But we are right in the thick of God's wrath being unreleased on an unrepentant world. And this is sobering stuff. This is difficult stuff. This is, um, is, is heavy-duty stuff. So chapter 9, the title of this message is The Righteousness of God Revealed in Darkness. And hopefully that will make sense as we teach the chapter. The Righteousness of God Revealed in Darkness. We're going to read the whole chapter, which is a, a fairly lengthy one, one of the longest chapters so far, and then we'll work our way through it. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, starting in... Verse 1 of Revelation 9, John's vision that he's receiving continues, and he says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die. And death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders have breastplates, the color of fire and hastenth and and brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. 
And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor their sorceries nor their immorality nor their thefts. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, your word to us today, this text before us is astounding and it's, it's, somewhat, it's um, somewhat upsetting and it's heavy duty stuff, Lord. And it can seem difficult to understand and to wrap our minds around, even if we do understand it. And so we ask for help today. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our helper and our comforter, and the one who teaches us all things and leads us into all truth, Jesus, you said. And so we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. We would have truth and understanding, that we would be led, that we would be comforted, and also that we would obey, that we would live our lives faithfully, in light of your coming judgment and your word. And Lord, that you would truly make us evangelists, each one of us. For we all know men and women and children who need to meet Jesus and so be forgiven of their sins and saved from the wrath to come. And that this would propel us joyfully into the world as evangelists to tell the good news of the one who saves us and delivers us. Help us to live in such a way, in light of this text and your coming justice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as you'll recall here, John in chapter 4 was invited up into heaven where he's being given this vision from God about things of the future, about the end of all things, about future judgment, about God's justice coming to earth, God's wrath coming to earth, and following that, God's righteous rule coming to earth. And John saw first a vision of God on his throne in his glory, speaking of all of his sovereignty and his power. And then he saw in chapter 5 a vision of Jesus the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And because he brought God's mercy to the world, he's also the lion of God who can bring God's justice to the world. And so you'll remember that he took from the father's right hand a scroll written on the front and back with seven seals. And Jesus is the only one worthy to break the seals. And as he broke the seals consecutively, God's judgments were unleashed progressively on an unrepentant world. And when he got to the seventh seal and it was broken, from that seventh seal came seven trumpets. These are the seven trumpet judgments in which we find ourselves in the midst of right now. And we find ourselves, depending on your view of the book of Revelation, in the middle of the tribulation period, a time in the future when God's wrath is being unleashed on the world. And as we'll see today, evil is being unleashed in the world in a unique way. One of the overarching things that we're trying to see through the book of Revelation in these difficult chapters is that God's justice, God's judgment, God's wrath comes to earth for sure. We need it to. Sin must be judged. Evil must be confronted. Injustice must be dealt with. We need it to. It comes to earth for sure. 
and we ought to rejoice in that. But it comes to earth in a measured, patient, and progressive manner. Not because God is easy on sin. We ought to get from the book of Revelation that God is not easy about sin. That God doesn't take sin lightly. That God does not, though it seems at times he does. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't ignore injustice and the evils of the world. But we're seeing that his God, his wrath, excuse me, comes in a measured, patient and progressive manner. Not because God is easy on sin. Clearly, he's not but because God loves mercy. It comes in a measured, patient, progressive manner. Because God loves people. And because God would rather have people experience his mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ than his wrath through the judgment to come, he unfolds his wrath in a measured, patient, and progressive way. Because he loves people, and he loves mercy. And speaking of these very things, the apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle and said, the Lord is not really slow about his promise. Pause right there for a moment. I mean, you know, the wrath of God could have taken one verse. It's a whole bunch of chapters, but it could have been one verse that said, and then God dealt with all the evil in the world and it was done. Could have done it that way. But in his love and in his mercy, slow and progressive. But the Lord isn't really slow about his promise to judge evil as a context here. As some people think, no, he is being patient for your sake, speaking to humanity. He doesn't want, look at these beautiful words. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. It's the heart of God. But as we spoke of last week, to some extent, If mercy is refused, then only justice remains. If forgiveness is forsaken, then accountability for one's actions is all that remains. And that will be the case for some, those who refuse the mercy of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are seeing unfold in these chapters and in this text. And in this chapter, chapter 9, God's wrath unfolds in a peculiar, peculiar, excuse me, way, in a different way than we've seen before. It's unique in these fifth and sixth trumpets. Verse one kind of sets the stage. And the fifth angel sounded, okay, the fifth trumpet judgment. And I saw a star fall from heaven, which had come to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So in this vision, he's seen pictures of things these pictures have meaning. They they represent something. They they speak to something. And he sees a star fall from heaven. Now, he's seen other stars fall in this judgment sequence already. But this is a unique star. Notice it says that there was a key given to him. So this star is not an inanimate object. This star is a person or a being. It's referred to as a him, represented as a star, shown as falling from heaven, a place of exaltation, to earth, a different existence altogether. Who might this be? Well, it becomes clear in the rest of the text that this is a representation of Satan. And Satan is pictured as one who has fallen 
Several times throughout scripture, you'll remember that Jesus in the gospel sent his disciples out on a little practice missionary trip. He sent them out two by two in Luke chapter 10. He said, go preach the gospel and do gospel work. And they came back from their little practice missionary trip, super excited. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We tell demons to flee and they do. And they're all excited about it. Jesus says to them, of course they do, for Satan is fallen. He uses this language. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Scripture teaches that Satan is fallen from a place of exaltation to degradation. Satan is a fallen angel, the scriptures speak of, who was previously a member of the gathering in heaven, who rebelled and was cast out and has become the devil. We see this in Isaiah chapter 14 represented. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star. There's that star language. Son of the morning, you've been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Right? The great rebellion of Satan was pride. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. So Satan is pictured as a fallen angel throughout scripture, revealed as a fallen angel. And Jesus says he was a witness to this fallen state. And here we see a unique sort of fall of Satan. He's sent to, he's unleashed on the earth at a unique time for a unique thing. Verse two, verse one, he's given the key to the bottomless pit. Verse two, and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So we have this abyss, this pit, and it's gonna turn up in Revelation four or five more times, this bottomless pit, this abyss as it's called here. And it appears that the abyss is some place where there have been demons held in captivity, no doubt by God and his sovereign power. We know that some demons are loose in the world today, and it appears that some are currently bound. Later on in Revelation chapter 20, Satan will be thrown into this abyss, this pit, and he'll be ultimately bound there. Later on, after the final judgment of Revelation 20, what's known as the great white throne judgment, the name of the abyss or the pit will be changed to the lake of fire. And there Satan and his demons will be tormented forever and ever. This is generally what we refer to as a place called hell. And though popularly people think that demons are down there having a party and hosting parties, we see that the truth is ultimately they will be in a place of torment there through Christ the victor. And that presently some of them are in a place of imprisonment there. But now we see, strangely, that when God's judgment comes, they are allowed to be released for a time. We're told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus is the one who holds the keys to death in Hades. Another way of talking about this place. But now Satan's given the key to let loose these demonic forces for a time. So we begin to see that the tribulation period is both God's justice unleashed on earth and evil 
unleashed on earth. But we also see that God is sovereign over it all. For nothing is happening here that's outside of Christ's sovereignty. He's even sovereign over these exercises of evil. And part of the way that God judges evil is to let it run its course. Part of the way that God judges humanity is to let them indulge in evil to the extent that they want to and then to experience the effects of that. We saw that explicitly, explicitly, excuse me, I'm a little tongue-tied this morning, a few weeks ago when we looked at Romans chapter 1 where God gave them over to their desires, those who were in rebellion and refused to acknowledge him. So this abyss is a place where demons seem to be locked up. Doesn't seem like they like it. Remember in the Gospels when Jesus was going to cast the demons out of the man named Legion? And the demons said this to him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. There's that place. This is not a happy place for the demons. And now they're unleashed. And this unleashing is pictured like smoke that's so thick that it blots out the sun for a time. This may be for us a cue, a picture of the corrupting influence of evil, the darkness of hell. It may be a picture of deception where light is obscured and everything is smoky and hard to make out. And Jesus said that the last days would be characterized by deception. Then it unfolds in verse 3. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. So these are demonic beings that are pictured here, described as being like locusts and scorpions. Okay, they're like locusts and they're also like scorpions. It's obvious from the description that they're not actual locusts. They're not actual bugs. They're demons, but they're pictured in a certain way to communicate something. The picture makes it clear they're not real locusts. Look in verse 7 as we see what their appearance was like. Verse 7, And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings were like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle, and they have tails like scorpions. So there's this description of these demonic beings that John has seen. They've got crowns on their heads and faces like men and hair like women and breastplates like iron and armor and tails like scorpions. Some have said in looking at this that maybe John is trying to describe in the end time helicopters. Maybe he's never seen a helicopter and this is what he's saying. And when he says they have faces like men that it's pilots sitting in the seats and... I don't know. Others have gone through every little description and faces like men represents this and hair like women represents the seductive nature of evil. Sorry, women. And so on and so forth. I don't know. I don't know. I think though what's clear is that John is seeing something that is grotesque, hard to describe, and like nothing he's ever seen before. 
I think the salient point, the most pungent point is this, is that evil is being unleashed and it's vile and ugly and horrific and frightening. We could summarize it that way. These were not pleasant things to look at, nor clearly from the chapter are they pleasant to experience in their effects. This is demonic power unleashed on earth. And the unleashing is pictured like a swarming of locusts. And that's an important picture because we know from the Bible and and other sources that when locusts swarm, they have an incredible destructive power, right? If If they swarm upon crops or vegetation, they just destroy everything that's in their path. And they can just come and blot out the sun and just move through an area and just wipe it out. That's an important picture. This is a swarming sort of event, an overwhelming sort of event. But they're not aiming for vegetation. They're not real locusts. Their aim is humanity, made clear in verse 4. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. When we were in chapter 7, we talked about those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, 144,000 that God sealed. Those here on earth that don't belong to Jesus Christ, that haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, are the ones who will be affected by this demonic horde. And so what's happening here is that God in his judgment is using evil to judge the world. Evil's being unleashed on an unprecedented scale. And evil will be connecting with, interacting, working upon unrepentant humanity, and the effects of it are astounding. Let's drill down a little bit more and try to understand it. I I think what is ultimately in view here is worship, not the singing of songs, but to what or whom one gives allegiance. To what or whom one exalts. Who or what is ultimate in men and women's lives. It's clear that worship is what is in view here from verse 20. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent to the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. The issue here is worship. The issue here is humanity that has refused to recognize Jesus Christ as the Lord and the Savior of the world. The issue here is what should be exalted and what should not be exalted. The issue here is humanity's proclivity to exalt things that ought not to be exalted. Idolatry. This is one of the things from which the gospel saves us. Idolatry. And idolatry takes all sorts of forms. One of the most common idols is you, is me, is oneself. One of the most common things that we exalt in ways we ought not to is self, the ego, me, what I want, what I desire, who I am, how I'm pictured, my reputation, my plans, my place. My space. And what Revelation chapter 4 taught us when John was first revealed heaven was that there was a throne there and there was one seated upon the throne and it is not you. 
And it is not me, nor is it any man. It is God who is on the throne. This tells us that there is only one in all of the universe who can rightly be exalted and worshipped. And part of the goal of Satan throughout time is to try to get men and women and children to worship anything other than God. Self is the easiest target. Money is an easy target. Sex is an easy target. Reputation is an attractive one. Stuff makes sense. All these other pursuits of things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they were never meant to be God himself. And so when we exalt them, they break us. That's called sin, idolatry. And because Satan wanted to exalt himself and was cast out of heaven, Satan's now goal, goal now is to get humanity to exalt anything other than Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we see this unfolding on earth in an unprecedented way. And we have to realize that the enemy doesn't do this, tempt us to exalt wrong things by showing us the end result. Right? The enemy always only shows us how these things will benefit us in the short term. Right? If you refuse to forgive them because you're more important than them, that will feel better for you. If you push them down so that you can climb up the ladder, that will be better for you. You have needs after all and your wife isn't meeting them. So if you indulge in her or in those things, that will be better for you. Life has been hard. You deserve more. You ought to get those things. That would be better for you. Sin always looks good on the front end. Of course it does. He never shows us the end result. The only one who shows us the end result is the one who loves us, God. And what God is doing in this chapter is showing us the end result of idolatry, which is ultimately demon worship is how it puts it here. Anytime we're failing to exalt Jesus Christ to the ultimate place, we are engaging in the realm of demons. This is what they want to do. And God loves us enough to show us the end result. And here it's pictured as torment. These things will have a tormenting effect in the lives of humanity. And that torment will lead to death. That becomes clear in the last part of the chapter, verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels, these are fallen angels, demons, who are bound, right? Because good angels are not bound, at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels, demons, who have been prepared for this hour, day, and month, and year, were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. Here it is, evil playing out. Torment was a step in it, right? Verse four, and they torment men. And it ultimately leads to death. And it's like an overwhelming horde, verse 16. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. Literally in the Greek, it's just myriads and myriads. It means an innumerable number, an incalculable number. And this is how I saw them. We don't have to read it again, but they, they looked gnarly. 
Verse 18, and a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. Sin is always presented as attractive, something that meets our needs, something that is excusable, justifiable, and warranted. God's final revelation is telling us in no uncertain terms that these things, which have at their core evil, demonic influence, when exalted, torment humanity. We've experienced this. And they ultimately lead to death. James said this about it. Remember when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God never tempted, is never tempted to do wrong. He never tempts anyone else to do so. Temptation comes from our own desires, sinful nature, which Satan appeals to, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So here we have in Revelation chapter 9, sin being allowed to grow in an unprecedented way on earth, in a unique way at that moment in history. But we experience this in sort of microwaves in our own lives. If we allow sin to grow in our own lives, it brings forth death. That's what's happening there amongst the unrepentant. That is the same effect that sin has in our lives. This is why the constant exhortation is to confess our sins to God, to repent of our sins, to move away from sin and toward obedience. Because when sin is allowed to grow, It gives birth to death, all sorts of death. Three ways that we'll mention. Number one, ultimate death. It's known in the book of Revelation as the second death, eternal separation from God, also known as hell. The wages of sin is death. And unless we are forgiven of our sins by repenting of them, putting in faith in Jesus Christ, we will experience what is known as the second death. But it also leads to the first death, physical death. Death entered the realm of creation through sin, the Genesis account. But it also leads to all sorts of daily death when we allow sin to grow. Doesn't it kill our relationships? Doesn't it kill our emotions? Doesn't it kill our influence for righteousness and for Christ? Doesn't it kill our joy when we let those things grow? All sorts of little microcosm ways that sin, when allowed to grow, and how are we allowing it to grow, we ought to be asking, gives birth to death. And Satan will never tell you that. He will tempt you with things that are shiny and look good on the front end and are easily justifiable and seem warranted. But God loves you enough to tell you on the back end, it is death. We're seeing this in an ultimate way in this text. So what is God's purpose in all this? Well, he's unleashing his wrath and judgment, number one, and he's using the enemy to do so. That's, God has always done that. that. That seems strange to us, right? Like, wow, he's using Satan. He's letting demons loose to do this, but God has always used enemies in the life of Israel all the time. When Israel needed to be chastened or judged or dealt with, God would use their enemies, Ultimately, what this tells us is that Satan will be revealed in the end as a tool. 
God is sovereign. Satan doesn't win. Satan doesn't have control. Satan doesn't have a blank check. It's clear here that Christ is the one who is in control. But evil will be allowed to run its course. And this will be a form of God's judgment when humanity fully gives themselves to a full expression of evil on earth. And in the end, God using evil as a form of his wrath and judgment will be shown to be sovereign and in control. But also here, God is showing his patience and his mercy. This text is unveiling God's patience and mercy. All of this, though it is judgment, is also meant to lead to repentance. Remember that it said there in verses, where are they? Verse five, and they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. That's to leave room for repentance. Because at this point, if the unrepentant die, they die apart from salvation in Christ and they're lost forever to hell. Look at the restraint that God puts even on evil. You can run your course, but you may not kill anybody. I'm leaving room for repentance. And the hope of God is that people, people will see evil for what it is. It's obscuring the light. It's like smoke and fire and it's obscounding everything and it's, and it's tormenting in its effects. The hope of God is that men and women might repent. God is showing them the results of pursuing darkness. It's clear that salvation is the goal by the exclamation at the end where it says, and they did not repent. That was the goal. Though it is wrath, though it is judgment, it was also that they might repent. And thirdly in the text, God is unfolding his light and his justice. He's unfolding that. Yeah, he's revealing, he's unmasking the nature of evil. It's being seen for what it is. But he's also revealing his light and justice. You know, light is only seen in juxtaposition to darkness. Right? That no-brainer. Something's only black if you also see white, right? Light is only seen in juxtaposition. This is why in the beginning there was darkness and God said, let there be light. That was profound difference. Light is something that dispels the darkness. Light is something that penetrates darkness. Darkness cannot exist where light is. God is unfolding his light in the midst of this darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks of it with regards to our hearts. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world, lowercase g, God of this world, that's a way of speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light. See what the enemy tries to do? Obscure with darkness. So they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as his servants. Verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, creation language, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God is always wanting to reveal 
his light to the world. Part of our theological understanding of God is he is a God who is into self-revealing. That's why he's given us his word. That's why Christ became incarnate. That's why the heavens speak of his handiwork. God is always wanting to reveal. And as we move all the way up to the end, God is still looking to reveal. And his light is seen best in juxtaposition to darkness. So when darkness is unleashed on earth in an unprecedented way, the light of Jesus Christ might be seen. We'll see that more and more profoundly in the chapters to come. And speaking of these very things, Jesus said this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself. And men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds might be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Look at the clarity Jesus brings to it. This is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. Remember, mercy came long before judgment did in the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Light is coming to the world. But men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So that when we see in Revelation chapter 9 that darkness comes in an unprecedented way, The humanity is tormented by it, so much so it's said in the text, they wish they could die. And then death ultimately comes. And they refuse to repent. God is shown to be just because their deeds are shown to be evil. Even though they experience the full weight of darkness, men love the darkness rather than the light. They refused to repent, even though the darkness was tormenting and ultimately destroying. And so in that, God is shown to be just and righteous. He has extended light and mercy and warning, but men chose the darkness. And this, scriptures clearly say, will be exposed, that there are men and women who love darkness and refuse the light. And that this, the scriptures say, will be judged. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 9. But the question really is what's happening in our lives? Because this is coming, but what's going on right now? We have to ask, as those who are Christians, who have come to the light Jesus Christ, if that's you, we have to ask in our own lives right now, this is the way that sin will be dealt with ultimately. Then where am I choosing darkness right now? That's a good question. Where are you choosing darkness right now? If that's a full effect of it, if it ultimately torments and it leads to death, some sort of death in our lives, shouldn't we make ourselves aware with the help of the Holy Spirit, where am I choosing darkness rather than light right now? Where am I not walking in the light? What are the hidden places, the hidden spaces? What are the dark areas? What are the areas where we refuse the light? We're, we're, we're locking Jesus out. We're choosing rebellion. We know the right thing, but we don't do it. These things are serious. These things are real. God in his love is revealing the destructive nature of sin here. And we also ought to ask ourselves, where am I being deceived? Because as we spoke of, Satan 
always comes as an angel of light. It's never going to show you the horror of it on the front end. The horror is experienced on the back end when we find ourselves in addiction that we can't get out of. Relationships that can't be repaired. Bitterness that has destroyed us from the inside out. A marriage that's lost forever. It's never going to show you the back end. So the question is, where am I being deceived? Because when the abyss was opened, smoke came forward and it obscured the light. We need to have moments in the light. Where with the help of the Holy Spirit, we look at our lives with scriptural Holy Spirit clarity and we ask the hard questions. God, where am I walking in darkness and not in the light? Where am I being deceived, being made to think that what I'm doing is okay when it's not? Look what Paul wrote in Romans about this very thing. He said, do this knowing the time, knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. This time of judgment, it's coming near. The night is almost gone. The day is near. The day is the coming of the Lord when his righteous rule will come. So since that's going to happen, since that's coming, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Since sin is going to be judged this way, And when Jesus comes, when the full light is revealed to the world, it's going to be righteousness. Then let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Those are not commensurate with, those are not consonant with, those are not consistent with who you are in Christ. And the righteousness it is to be revealed to the world. So let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Where am I walking in darkness? What do I do about it? We lay it aside. Maybe you need help with that. Get that. We all need help at times whatever it takes by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the truth of the word with help from Christian brothers and sisters through prayer lay it aside put on the armor of light so it just says it real clearly here okay this is pretty clear stuff let us behave properly as in the day days and metaphor you know like you never go into a bar and it's full of skylights right? Like, oh, it's always they're like darkly lit in place. I'm not saying the bars are the bastions of evil, but there's certain things that we just don't do out in the day. It's a, it's a metaphor. There's certain things that just will not exist in the ultimate day when Christ comes again. So let us behave properly as in the day. Let, let me just put that a different way, as in the day. How would we behave? I'm preaching to myself, okay? How would we behave Christ were physically present in the room with me. Because isn't Christ always present with us? But isn't the truth of the second coming that one day Christ will be physically present on earth to establish his righteous rule? So let's live now since he really is present with us as a church. In light of the day, not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Those are interesting pairings, aren't they? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. You know, I find myself oftentimes making provision 
for the flesh in regards to its lust. In other words, how can I create situations to satisfy my flesh? Whether it's pride or it's lust or it's a desire for a certain thing or it's influence or it's power or it's reputation, we often make provision for the flesh. If I tell a little lie here, I'll look better there, provision for the flesh. If I get around the corner and look at her here, I'll feel gratified in my flesh provision for the flesh. All sorts of different ways that we make provision for the flesh. And the scriptures just say, Christ is coming again. You're children of the light. You're the beloved of God. Stop acting like you're supposed to live in the darkness and walk in the light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The NLT says, put on the presence of Jesus Christ himself. The fact that we know that sin is destructive and we engage in it still highlights all the more our need for a savior. That we, we, we truly need to be saved from sin. Right? When it's said there that in verse 11 that the leader of these demons, his name is Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek, both of them in their various languages mean, means destroyer. The one who leads evil is a destroyer. We know that these things destroy, and yet we still engage in them. Highlights our need for a savior, that we need to be actually saved from the power of sin. This is what putting faith in Jesus Christ says. We're saved from the power and the penalty of sin. And it shows us that we truly need sanctification that we need to experience Christian transformation, that we need to pursue through the truth of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, transformed lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter, in speaking about this, said, and so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, speaking of God's judgment, come to earth. Okay, so right now, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. And John said, this is a message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See the juxtaposition between saying that we have no sin and confessing our sins. You know where we find ourselves in the hardness of heart? is saying, this is not really a big deal. This is not really a sin. There's reasons why I should do this. There's reasons why I think God is okay with this. We're we're, we're deceiving ourselves. See the juxtaposition between saying that it's not sin and confessing our sins. See the wonderful opportunity for the Christian to move out of deception and the day of darkness and the obscuring of the light, to walk in the light and to confess and so to be forgiven and cleansed. You know what the ultimate problem in Revelation chapter 9 is? It was that men had hard hearts. 
no matter how much sin grounded and pounded upon them, no matter how horrific the effects, they refused to confess it as what it was, darkness and sin. That's what it said at the end. They refused to repent. Brothers and sisters, if Christ has saved us, then should we not have soft, obedient hearts toward the truth? That's, that's the opposite of what we see in the chapter. If this is hardness of heart that suffers the effects of sin, if we have a great Savior, Jesus Christ, should we not cultivate softness of heart? Do not the scriptures tell us, beware, watch over one another's hearts, lest there be found in you a hardened heart by the deceitfulness of sin? We have a new nature. Sin is not our master anymore. We don't need to experience the torment. We don't need to let areas of our lives die for we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We end with Romans 6. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you are dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument for God to do what is right. For the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given to you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. May it be so in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the way that it's instructed us today about future judgment, but also about our present lives. Help us, Lord, these questions that we've asked, where am I walking in darkness? Where am I not walking in the light? Where am I being deceived? We need the help of the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth to see those areas and to forsake those areas, that Jesus, you might be glorified in our lives. Move us out of the place of denying our sin to confessing our sin, that we might be forgiven, washed, and cleansed. Thank you for the new identity and the new creatures that we are in you. Help us to walk according to this newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus. Amen.